Good morning, everyone. Let's just pray as we come to God's word. Father, as we still our hearts and as we submit ourselves to your spirit and to your word this morning, may you guide us. Lord, may your word speak. May your word convict. May your word do all the things that you intended to do this morning. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I don't know what your trick is in life to remembering things. Um, I know someone, I won't mention any names, who has a lot of alerts on their phone. And you can't sit through a meeting with someone without certain alerts and reminders going off. And I can understand the necessity for that, for some people. Some of us do that. Some of us... Uh, put notes in our physical diaries. Yeah, we, we note down things we have to be present for, things we need to call to mind, uh, birthdays and anniversaries. All these things help us to remember. They call to mind something that we're not supposed to forget. Now, whatever your trick is for doing that, whether it's tr- tying a couple of knots in your hanky or writing on your hand, as some people do as well, um, there's all different things we, we do to try and help ourselves remember the things that are important. Remembrance is almost part of a daily routine. When you wake up in the, in the morning, you usually flow into a routine because you remember what you have to do for the day. If it's a work day, you know what you have to do to get ready for that. If it's a weekend, you, know you, have to, you remember what you have to do to get ready for that. There's all sorts of things we do just out of routine and out of remembrance because we remember, oh, this is what I do today, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow, all these sorts of things. Now, this morning, as has already been said, this little passage that we're looking at uh, is all about remembrance. And it's it's sort of the, the very essence of the Christian faith is condensed into these couple of short verses. And the Christian faith in itself is one that calls us to remember and to remind, be reminded constantly of what Jesus has done. And we've done that together this morning in communion. We've proclaimed the Lord's death. And we do that as has already been read out for us until Jesus comes again. And this is what it means to be a Christian. To know that Jesus died and rose again. And to live a life where that is constantly in your mind and in your heart and before your eyes. And we live that way so we can have hope, so we can have power for daily living. And we live that way because it's the obedient way for a Christian to live, is to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. So our passage this morning, two short Verses. And as Peter was reading it to you, maybe you had the same impression that I did when I realised I was assigned this passage. Like, what's the point? Two small little verses. And what's the point especially? Because Jesus has already said this just a chapter earlier, chapter 16. What's the point when he's going to say it again? 
Why is Jesus repeating himself? It's not the first time he said it. It's not going to be the last time he said it. So as we come to think about that this morning, I don't want us to be thinking, why is Jesus repeating himself? What's the point of this? I want us to be thinking, how do we react? How do we respond in life when things aren't quite going the way we expect? When something hits us that we don't quite expect to happen, what is our response? And what should we be reminded of? What do we need to be reminded of this morning? Because each of us has come here this morning with something. Whether it's health, whether it's relationships, whether it's finance, whether it's burdens of any or every kind, we've all come here this morning and I want to guarantee you there's something you need to be reminded of, the gospel, and how beautiful and wonderful it is. So that's what we want to do this morning. But firstly, I want to think about the predictions as a whole. As I said, it's not the first time Jesus said it. Uh, It's not going to be the last time. So let's have a look at all of the predictions and then think about why Jesus does this. Uh, Back in chapter 16 and verse 21, uh, it says, uh, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 17, verse 9 He talks as they're coming down with some of the disciples from the mount where he's been transfigured. Jesus commanded them and said, tell no man till the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Verse 12 in the same uh, section there. He said, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. We have this uh, prediction here in verses 22 and 23. And again, Jesus is going to do the same in chapter 20. Verses 17 to 19. They're still continuing up to Jerusalem. And again, he takes the disciples aside and says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They'll condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles who'll be mocked and flogged and crucified and he'll be raised on the third day. Now, we sort of get the point just reading all those together really briefly that Jesus is stressing something. Do you get that? He's repeating this and he's stressing it to the disciples that we're going to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. It is necessary for me to go to Jerusalem. And he's trying to explain them as they're going to Jerusalem why he's going to Jerusalem. And he starts to give those predictions, especially I think uh, the context is, is helpful. And when he starts to give them, because verse 21 tells us, from this time on, he begins to tell them. That comes directly after Peter has confessed Jesus for who he is. They've had their little discussion, who do you say that I am? And Peter has said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's after that, it's after that, that Jesus begins to teach his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. So I think, That's important for us to understand why Jesus does what he does, why he repeats it, why he makes these predictions. Because Jesus is preparing the disciples for what that confession of Peter really means. It's one thing to know who Jesus is. You are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. It's one thing to have the right words, but what does that mean? What does it mean? And Jesus is teaching his disciples. And we see by their different reactions in each of the predictions that there's some awareness and then there's a step back and there's sort of a step forward and a step back. There's, uh, after the first prediction, Jesus, of course, is rebuked by Peter. And Peter says, no, that can't happen. May it not be. That cannot happen. After this prediction that was read for us, we see they're greatly distressed. And after the next one in chapter 20, there's a very interesting encounter where the mother of two of the disciples comes to Jesus and asks for him to give them positions of authority. Can one sit on your left? Can one sit on your right? There's sort of a, there's all these different reactions that the disciples are having too. And these various reactions show us that the disciples still need this lesson. They still need to know what's happening. Why is it happening? Because they know he's the Christ. But what has the Christ come to do? Jesus said, well, the Christ, the son of the living God, must suffer, must die, and must rise again. And these are the truths, that true confession and the true belief and the meaning that goes with it is what forms the church. He must go to Jerusalem. And at no stage is Jesus going to Jerusalem unaware of what's waiting for him. John 10 tells us that Jesus himself said, no one takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to raise it up again. He is not going to Jerusalem ignorant of what's going to happen and he's teaching his disciples as they're going. He's grounding them in this truth. This is the reality. I am going to Jerusalem. I must go. I must die. I must be raised again because that is what the Son of God has come to do. So that's sort of the predictions as a whole. Just narrowing in on these couple of verses and then I want us to think, spend time thinking about what it means for us but these, this couple of verses this sort of, this second major prediction by Jesus, what does it you know there's some little things in it that are different from the others we see there's a bit of a progression the first one, Jesus was I must go to Jerusalem I'll die and be raised again this one includes, starts to include some details, he's going to be betrayed um, there's also the reaction that's different from the disciples. The next one, he adds more detail. It's not just going to be portrayed. He's going to be portrayed into the hands of the Gentiles. And he's going to be beaten and flogged and mocked. There's little things that Jesus adds. But this one particularly, there's this revelation that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. A better word for that is he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to men. And this, I think, rightly shocks the disciples. Some of them have just seen, Peter, James and John especially, have just seen his full glory. They've just heard from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They've seen him fully transfigured as the son of God and now here he's saying, this son of God is going to be taken and killed by men. The stress is somewhat understandable of a response. 
What about the title Jesus uses of himself? The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. There's a lot going on in that sort of contrast. The Son of Man is a title Jesus likes to use of himself more than any other title, especially in Matthew's Gospel. And it's explicitly a title connected to Old Testament prophecies about this coming promised one that God had promised, as we've talked about before. And it comes specifically from Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days, God is sitting on his throne, and he gives to one who is like the Son of Man all dominion, all authority, and all kingdoms, and all the earth is at his feet. And Jesus, by taking that title for himself, as he often does, saying, here is the one with all authority, all power, all kingdoms, all the earth at his feet, is going to be betrayed and handed over to men. And killed by men. To use that title for himself and connect it to his betrayal and humiliation and death. Is that really what the Son of Man is to do? The disciples, my translation said, they're greatly distressed, exceedingly sorrowful. The grief was strong. They're starting to grasp the reality that Jesus is going to die. He's not just saying this. It's actually going to happen. And we know that they haven't rebuked him this time. Last time it was like, no, that can't happen. This time it's like, he said it again. This must be actually going to happen. They've started to grasp that reality, but they haven't fully grasped, of course, what follows. That he'd be raised again. All the importance of why he has to die. All they know at this point, all they can fathom is that Jesus is going to die. Their little faith, as we've spoken about a few times, and verse 20 has talked about their little faith in the previous section again that couldn't cast out the demon from the boy. Their little faith was enough for them to give up everything and follow Jesus. But it's a little faith that needs to keep growing. To keep them to keep them developing their understanding of what Jesus had really come to do. Jesus is telling them the king has come. The son of man with all authority has come. And he is going to reign, but he's going to reign by being a suffering servant. And he's come to deliver. He has come to rescue. He has come to save. But he's going to do that by subjecting himself to betrayal and death. And then on the third day he will rise. What does this mean for us? As we consider this, these encounters that, that Jesus has, I think there's some, there's some really critical things that we can put into our lives. How do we connect what Jesus is doing to our life? Because for the disciples, their life was with Jesus. 
That was their life. They saw him daily. They saw him doing wondrous and amazing things and they followed him everywhere being filled with this awe and this wonder that they were with the Son of God. And yet, Jesus gives them this truth, which we would call the truth of the gospel, and say, I'm going to die and rise again. And they can't connect the gospel to their experience. How does this fit? And we could well ask ourselves the same question this morning. How does the truth of the gospel fit with my life and my experience and my current circumstances? Because they don't always seem to connect. How do we respond when things happen to us that we aren't expecting? The disciples weren't expecting this. There's a few options, of course. If we think of the example of the disciples, we follow in their steps in more ways than one. One of the responses when things happen that we don't expect is we just react with denial. That can't possibly happen. That would never happen to me. That would never happen. God just wouldn't allow that. No, it's not happening. There's many situations in which we might do this in various ways. But what it boils down to in my own heart when I think of how I react that way is when I'm far more committed to my own plans. I am to God's plans. The disciples' plan was to reign physically with Jesus, to reign with him. And nothing was going to get in the way of that, even Jesus. And for me, how often have I put other things before Jesus, denying his power, his authority? These disciples have just heard, some of them at least, have just heard from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He has all authority, he has more authority than the law and the prophets. Listen to him. And yet, in my own heart and life, there is so often when I push back when something happens, that can't be happening. That's not how it's supposed to work. We have often, and I often commit myself to things, to a certain way of life, to choices in life, regardless of the consequences. And I justify these things because I know better. I know better than God's word. I know better than the people around me that are speaking to me. I know better than the gospel. This, my way, is better. Denial is a strong thing. But God himself has given us truth. And Jesus comes and says, this is the truth. I must die. I must be raised again. What are you going to do with that? And when we refuse to accept that, and refuse to accept that into everyday life, 
And whatever the situation is, we're refusing to acknowledge that God is in control. Yes, this doesn't look good for the disciples. They're not getting what they thought would happen. But they've just been told to listen to this one, this son of man. So that's one option, is denial. And if I think about the thing that I'm often in denial about the most is the cost of my own sin. Because when we are confronted with things in life and hurt and suffering and all the things that we like to count up as not going the way we think it should, we sometimes deny. That's just part of the cost of my sin. These things that are adding up, these things that, are, that I could count up the ways that I have failed God. But instead, I'm going to stick with my plan because it's better. But Jesus comes and says, if you deny this truth, you're denying your only hope of salvation. Don't deny that you need this. Don't deny that you need Jesus to have died for you and risen again. Don't deny that when you're in the moment of struggle, whatever that struggle might be for you. And there's many things that we could list Again, whether it's relational, whether it's, for me, the the hitting home point at the moment is parenting. Where does the gospel connect to my real life experience in parenting? Because at the moment, it's just, I won't probably physically do that. But there's a frustration in life. Where does the gospel connect to your relationships? Where does the gospel connect to your bank account? Where does the gospel meet? these things. Well, denial is not an option. You cannot deny that you need Jesus to have gone to the cross. The other option from the disciples' example and the example that we often follow is that of grief without hope. The great distress that the disciples have here when they hear this again And they're overcome with the thought of what they're going to lose. And there's something right in a certain sense for grief, with grief. There's something right about their response. That they would grieve the death of the Son of God. And there's something right for us when we grieve as well. When we grieve loss or we grieve for the things we wish were certain ways. There is something very right about that. Because that is reflecting the heart of God who also grieves for sin and all of its consequences. But when we stay in grief, when we are overcome with great distress, when we are exceedingly sorrowful and we ignore the hope that Jesus has offered, that is not, is not what Jesus intended. Because with his death, he promises life. And we will not always have warm, joyous feelings as we follow Jesus. 
Peter talks about those who follow after. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you, like something out of the ordinary has happened. Expect this. But know that in it, you're being called to share in the sufferings of Christ. We're not called to have comfort. We're not called to be free of burdens in this life in some senses. We will feel pain. We will feel loss. We will have distress. We will feel the weight of sin, and we should. And the Psalms are full of cries to God from people that cried to him from positions of great pain, of great distress. but also of great hope. Ed Welsh, author, puts it this way. Faith is not the presence of warm religious feelings. It's the knowledge that you walk before the God who hears. Faith is not the presence of warm religious feelings. It's the knowledge that you walk before the God who hears. How then do we apply this to this truth of Christ's death and resurrection to our everyday lives, when, when we do feel pain, when we do feel loss and hurt and even death. Because in the midst of great suffering, in the midst of great distress, in the midst of great grief, looking for hope can sometimes feel exhausting and impossible. But this is the great thing about what we're sharing this morning is the repetition and the remembrance of the gospel. when you are constantly in the gospel, being reminded of it, even if it is over and over and over again, the pattern of the gospel lifts us from suffering to glory, from death to life. So what is your responses this morning? What is my response when I'm faced with things I don't understand? Things that I don't expect. We thought about the option of denial. We thought about the option of just staying in grief without hope. What situation am I seeking to avoid in life? As Beck read for us this morning, even from Psalm 113, verse 3, the sunrise and the sunset are both blessings. God provides both the end of the day and the start of the day. Even with Job, as we sung this morning in the words that he said, even with Job, that one who suffered so much loss and pain and grief, even he was able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Even in the face of the most difficult circumstances. The one great encouragement I think from this passage as well is just the certainty of the resurrection. We often focus when we talk of the gospel and it's not a wrong thing to do on the cross. And the cross is a a central feature of the gospel. But Jesus, when he is 
teaching this to the disciples and drilling it into them over and over the first time, the second time, the third time. There are two central things when it comes to the hope and the salvation of the gospel is the death and the resurrection. He didn't just subject himself to death as the almighty son of God, this messianic son of man. He didn't just subject himself to betrayal, humiliation and death, provide the perfect sacrifice for all our sins on the cross and then stay dead. He didn't. The story doesn't end with death. The story doesn't end in the tomb. That is the same for us this morning. The gospel truth does not end for you with that broken heart, that broken relationship, the empty bank account, the the strained pressures of life. It doesn't end in the darkness. It ends in the light breaking through into an empty tomb. There's many things we could go into, the proofs of the resurrection. But the ultimate proof, the reality of the resurrection is the transformed lives of the disciples. These men that went from denying that it would happen to grieving that it would happen to running away when Jesus did die, to then when he did rise and the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost, these men were transformed, emboldened. And what is the message that they went everywhere teaching and preaching and making disciples throughout the whole world? What is the message that they shared? the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because even though they didn't get it the first time, they didn't get it the second time, they didn't get it the third time, they got it. And this is the message they proclaimed to the whole world and they, again, the church was founded on is the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what about us? What do we learn from these two short verses this morning? We learn the gospel. And this is not just, the gospel is not just a message for those that don't yet follow Jesus. This is not just for you this morning if you've never heard about Jesus before. The gospel is for everybody. And when we say that, we mean that in the sense of it's for everybody that's already in the church as well. Those who are already following Jesus need the gospel. And you are always going to need the gospel. How many times do you need to hear this? Don't give me a number because that's not the point. We never reach a point when we won't need it the disciples heard it over and over again until they saw it with their own eyes and it transformed them and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 because you might say well that's alright for the um, the disciples they were there with Jesus they followed him on the path to Jerusalem they had all this teaching they actually saw him die and were around when he died 
Most of them actually saw him risen. All of these disciples saw him risen. Most people around that time saw Jesus risen, didn't they? But what about someone that didn't see him? What about someone that wasn't on that road to Jerusalem and hearing this teaching over and over and over again? They only needed it repeated until they saw it and then, of course, they'll teach it because they believe it and they saw it. And Jesus said, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. And one such person was Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, he gives this essence of the gospel. He says, I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised This is Paul speaking as someone who did not witness a lot of these things firsthand. And he's giving the gospel to this church in Corinth, a faraway place from Jerusalem, who also did not witness these things firsthand. He said, this is the message you need. It's the only thing you need. This is what you need to remember. Don't change anything about it. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. This is what you need. This is the only message that saves. This is the message that you need to hold on to in the face of everything else. Hold fast only to this. Teach only this. And this is the most important thing in the world, that Christ died and rose again. This is our salvation. Christ has made us right with God by his death in our place for our sins. This gives us our only hope that Christ has made us right with God completely, entirely, absolutely by his death but also by his rising again. This is our victory. That it doesn't end at death. That we don't stay in grief. We don't stay in distress. We have the hope of life. Because he is not dead. He is alive. The sting of death, the great distress of death has been removed from us, conquered, destroyed, defeated. My prayer this morning is that you find that hope to be true for you this morning, that you look to Jesus and see him as the living saviour. Let's pray. Lord, we come into your presence this morning in great awe that you have sent your Son, your one and only Son, and that he has given himself, he has subjected himself to betrayal, to humiliation, to death, and that he has risen and he is alive. Lord, we thank you for what the truth of that means to us. I pray that we will connect that into our lives. In those moments of daily pressure, of burden, of frustration, of depression, of hurt, of pain, they will remember that this story does not end in death. That Jesus is alive. And we praise you in his name. Amen.